The views, ideas, and content of well seekers and their guests are their own opinions, and you should always seek additional professional help around any of the issues discussed here on Well Seekers. Welcome to Well Seekers, where we are helping you find your story of well from the mind down, helping you rise and come back from whatever life throws your way. We are in the middle of a six-part series, maybe even a seven-part series on eating-related issues and how we can rise and come back from them. We've really covered a lot of ground so far. We've covered treatment options and how to talk to anyone that you may love that has an eating disorder, some signs and symptoms of eating disorders. We've heard a very powerful personal story from ballerina turned professional makeup artist and a very good friend of mine and just an incredible person, Campbell Ritchie. She came on to share her experience. We have gone over nutrition information. We've gone over diet culture. And if you've missed any of those shows, I encourage you to go to Wellseekers podcast page and just catch up, get up to date, lots of great stuff on there. Or you can just hit the RSS and actually subscribe to the podcast and then you will never miss an episode. On today's show, though, we're talking about something that this is fascinating topic. Populations that you would think typically may not suffer from eating related issues and eating disorders, but actually do. And we are going to have Michelle Felton come on. She is clinical director at Laurel Hill, which is an eating disorder treatment center located in Medford, Massachusetts, which is right outside Boston. She also has a private practice and is an eating disorder specialist and credentialed as an eating disorder specialist. Michelle is going to talk to us about a few populations specifically. She's going to talk about athletes and dive into adolescents as well. We may not have time to get into adolescents, so we're going to start off talking about athletes with Michelle. And then hopefully if we don't have time, hopefully she'll come back next week to talk about adolescence. Because I know here at Well Seekers, we have a lot of parents listening um, who have questions about their children and what to do and signs that may be different in adolescence and treatment options for adolescents as well. Athletes are a population that as a former division one athlete, I mean, I grew up running competitively. I think it was sixth grade that I started running, even though I didn't want to. I was the fourth child, so I just pretty much had to do the sport that my um, siblings did, um, which is how I got into running. But I got injured and then switched to crew in college. And you wouldn't think crew was an eating disorder sport, but um, and I wasn't in a lightweight boat, but any sport where you have to get weighed can make people more prone to eating disorders because they're constantly trying to hit a different weight. But for some reason, eating disorders and body consciousness was definitely a part, I feel like, of my team environment. Maybe it was just me. Um, It was so many years ago, but I felt like people talked about weight a lot, especially as rowers, because we were bulking up a lot. And I know for me, there were other factors contributing to my weight gain, but rowing and lifting weights and needing to be strong and powerful to move the boat and move the other bodies, which is something that's beautiful. I took it as, oh my gosh, I'm getting heavy and I need to do something about it. And it's one of the things that contributed actually to my own personal eating related issues. There are a lot of athletes in all shapes, sizes, and sports that you wouldn't think suffered from eating disorders. And they actually do. And it's not just gymnasts and ballerinas. Runners are afflicted. Like I said, rowing crew members are afflicted. So athletes are a population that you wouldn't necessarily think had eating disorders, but it absolutely is prevalent among certain athlete populations. I was reading about different risk factors for athletes at the nationaleatingdisorder.org, and they were talking about how sports with any appearance, of course, that focuses on appearance or has weight requirements, like I just said, that could be a risk factor and potentially increase chances for an eating disorder. Endurance sports, 
Track and field, running, swimming was one that they talked about that I was shocked by. Training for a sport since childhood or being an elite athlete can make you more at risk for eating disorders. Low self-esteem and even family dysfunction, even if you are a successful athlete, that can contribute to your risk factors as an athlete being an eating disorder. One of the other things, coaches. So I know that I had a coach as a runner who put a lot of emphasis on body size and different factors like that. So coaches can also play a role in that. So these are things if you're a parent or you're an athlete to watch for and also to counteract. Um, If you have a coach that says, you know, you need to lose weight, talk to someone else, not that coach, talk to your parent, talk to an adult, go outside of your coach and, and share that. It's really as an adolescent or as an athlete, it's not okay to comment on people's body shapes and sizes, regardless of the sport. So Michelle's going to come on and talk about that. Michelle isn't going to talk about men, but I do feel since we're talking about populations that normally aren't referenced when you think of eating disorders, I have to talk about males and eating disorders reported, and this number could be statistically much larger because many men don't self-report, but there are over 10 million males that will be afflicted at some point in time with an eating disorder. And like I said, because of cultural bias, many men don't report and men can face a double stigma and have a more difficult time both accessing assessment tests and treatment because they're not a population or a gender. Typically, labeled as such that would have an eating disorder. But to think that men are not at risk for eating disorders is absolutely false. So any male out there that is suffering, I just want you to know that it is possible if you're relating to this, that you could have an eating disorder, you could have an eating related issue. Men and body image is a huge topic. We really truly should do a whole show. And I've been thinking about in 2020, doing six weeks on male related issues and one of them being this. So we're going to dive into that more in the new year. So stay tuned, make sure you subscribe to that. But I just want to acknowledge any men listening that we will offer a show just for you in the near future. Or if you have a loved one that's male that that struggles. I know men in my life that have struggled with body image and with eating related issues. They're totally susceptible to it. Adolescence, of course, I think that we're going to have Michelle come on and just judging on how much there is to say about athletes next week, we will definitely target adolescents and bring Michelle back so I can give you guys more info on that. So right after the break, we'll be coming back with Michelle, clinical director of Laurel Hill, also a licensed mental health counselor who practices on her own. And Michelle is going to talk to us about populations like athletes specifically. And then hopefully, if we don't have time today, we'll get into adolescents next week that suffer from eating related issues and eating disorders as well. Some of the signs, the symptoms and treatment options for them. You do not want to miss this if you have an athlete in your life. So make sure you come back right after this incredibly quick break and join us right here on Well Seekers. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast to coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. All with the best phones or bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. You're listening to Wellseekers, a show where the journey is just as important as the destination. 
And we're back on Well Seekers with our guest this week, Michelle Felton. Michelle is clinical director at Laurel Hill outside of Boston, Massachusetts, right, Michelle? It's in Medford. Medford, Massachusetts. Um, and Laurel Hill is, of course, part of Montanito and Affiliates, an exceptional company helping service people that struggle with eating-related issues and eating disorders. Michelle's also an LMHC and a C. EDS, which is Certified Eating Disorder Specialist, and has her own private practice in the Boston area. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today on Well Seekers. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Yeah. I learned so much even in the two minutes that we talked before, because I'm in an LCSW or the equivalent of an LI in Massachusetts, LICSW. Oh, okay. What does it take to get a CEDS? Because that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a pretty intense um, process. You know, I have been working in the field um, for a little over 10 years now. Um, Oh, yeah, almost 11. Um, And was working with Dean for specifically for eight years. So when I went to apply for the process, um, I was able to do the fast track okay. because I've done six or seven presentations in the community about eating disorders. The majority of them focused on athletes with eating disorders. So on college campuses to coaches to athletes. And then I've also helped like develop program curriculum when we were opening the day program in downtown Boston. Mm. Um, I'm also a meta member and I have served on committees there. So you have to really be involved in the eating disorder community um, to be a certified eating disorder specialist. And if you haven't worked in the field that, you know, as long as I have, you can get supervision from a certified eating disorder supervisor. So it's an approved supervisor to get your hours in order to get the CEDS. I think people don't realize too with mental health and even though I feel like I'm more of a generalist. I have really worked with clients that have struggled with eating related issues and body image and different attributes like that. But in mental health, it literally is like any other medical profession where specialties matter so that you have Mm -hmm. that extra certification means to me that is someone that I would want to go to if I struggled with an eating disorder personally. Are there other certifications that people can get that we should look for if we're looking for treatment options? So there um, are registered dietitians can also become certified eating disorder specialists. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's super important. You want a dietitian who is an eating disorder specialist. They don't necessarily have to have their certification, but they need to be eating disorder educated and informed. And I also actually just recently learned nurses can become certified eating disorder specialists as well. Interesting. I I wonder why. Is it more nurse practitioners that are prescribing or just nurses in general? Um, Well, I know the person who talked about it is a nurse. Um, And so our residential programs have 24-hour nursing. So it's really important to have a nurse who's eating disorder informed because eating disorders, well, obviously struggle mentally, struggle physically as well. So there are a lot of medical complications that come with an eating disorder. Absolutely. And we talked about this a little bit on, well, every show that we've ever done with um, eating disorder related topics, but anorexia is still the number one killer in mental health Mm -hmm. related deaths and talked about so little. And I've asked every guest this question and everyone has a slightly different answer, but why do you think eating disorders don't get the attention that they deserved with a statistic like that? Is it because of who it affects? Is it because we're so used to having eating-related issues as a culture that we're almost numb to it? I think it's it's a couple of reasons. One, 
the diet culture is so prevalent mm. in the United States that I think sometimes it kind of gets brushed aside as a diet and not kind of seen for what it is, especially someone who's new in their eating disorder. Really, the primary factor, I believe, is that someone who's struggling with an eating disorder, there's so much shame attached to the disorder that you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to tell people that you're struggling. And the eating disorder kind of thrives in the shame and the secrecy. So a lot of people even don't reach out for help because of the shame and secrecy that involves the eating disorder. Mm. And you still think it's so funny because in 2000, almost 2020, you would, you would think that that has changed slightly, but you still, do you think it's as prevalent as it was 10 years ago when you started in this field? I would say it's, it's changed a little, you know, I would say that it's, it's come, it's come a little bit of a ways. you know, we have a lot more education out there. I think we are, obviously a lot more aware that not just one specific population struggles with eating disorders. You know, I've been working in treatment programs for a very long time. And I can say when I first started working in treatment programs, we did see primarily females ages 16 to 24 in our residential that we were in. And now we see much, much younger clients going to treatment. Um, We see women developing eating disorders later in their life, maybe post-children or into like their 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing women in their 50s and 60s come into treatment, which is a lot different. And we're also seeing males come into treatment now, which 10 years ago, I really didn't see any males in treatment. Since we're talking about it, let's talk about it now. And then before we let you go, I do want to know why you specifically got into this field, because I'd love to know people's backstories. Yeah. You mentioned some of the populations and the focus of today's show. I'm talking about individuals, populations that have eating disorders that you would not associate with having an eating disorder sometimes Mm -hmm. and the different complexities that come with that. I know you mentioned adolescents. I know you mentioned athletes. And then you mentioned something that a statistic that we talked about as well, the rise in eating disorders among older women. Mm-hmm. and older populations. So could you just chat about each of those and what you see and some of the differences in both warning signs if people are in that population and then second, treating those populations and how that may differ? Yeah. And so what I can say about the rise of women over 30 coming to treatment, yeah, what we see is I think it's more also because it's now talked about is not just Um, an illness of adolescence Mm. or early adulthood. I think even putting the education out there, so getting the primary care um, doctors educated on that, having, you know, is where we can sometimes see a change coming from for somebody over 30, maybe coming in with an eating disorder. We see a lot of clients come to treatment who are in their 50s and their 60s, and they actually do have very long histories of eating disorders, you know, so this eating disorder isn't brand new. This may be the first time they go to treatment. And I think it's because just putting the word out there about accessing care, that this isn't just an illness that affects white females ages 16 to 25, you can get help no matter what your age is. And that like, it is normal to need care for your eating disorder into your 50s, 60s, and 70s, whatever it might be. But with that being said, we also too have seen a lot of women develop eating disorders for the first time. Like we have had women come into treatment in their mid 40s who've had an eating disorder for a year or two. Do you think that that is because of what? I feel like even reading research on eating disorders, there is information out there that as women age, it isn't something that's as prevalent because, you know, some of the 
indicators that lead to eating related issues, right? Like body image and Mm -hmm. self-confidence and different things that are tied in to the actual eating disorder have worked themselves out by this point. Do you think that there's some sort of shift in culture? I mean, I don't. If you, I mean, yes and no. So if you think about it, if you have negative body image or low self-esteem or low confidence Mm -hmm. throughout most of your adolescence into your 20s, unless you're doing the work, it's not magically just going to go away. Absolutely, absolutely. So somebody who's 45 all of a sudden doesn't develop low self-esteem necessarily unless something's happened. So like their death of a parent, a child who's sick, divorce. There is a lot of pressure in society, you know, and I hate to always just fall back on society, but that older women and a woman who's 45 is not older by any means, but, you know, looking younger. Everyone's trying to look younger and with all like the anti-aging movements, the you can be fit in your 40s, you know, so there's a lot more pressure, I think, now that women face aging rather than it's being just a 20-year-old problem mm-hmm. because now it's anticipated that like just because you're a mom doesn't mean you quote unquote have to have like a mom body. It's like what a lot of people hear. And so pregnancy, I think, is also something that can really trigger an eating disorder for people, you know, with the hormonal shifts, all the new like insecurities, worries and fears that come with having a new baby. And then also worrying about the pressure of getting your body back is a lot that society puts out there. And so if you're somebody who's already prone to anxiety or depression in your life, and then you have these life events that happen, that is where you could channel the anxiety or depression is into the eating disorder. I believe social media has had an impact on the rise potentially in that demographic. I have no research right now to back that up. Um, I'd love to do research on it, though, to, f- to figure that out. But do you think that that has changed or, again, we're just talking about it more? You know, it's, it's probably a little bit of both. Okay. I think that the pressure to be fit no matter what your age is much different than it used to be. And I also think that because of social media, in some ways, we have more awareness of it, but I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. There's one population that you work with that maybe traditionally we wouldn't think of and associate with eating disorders. And part of the purpose of the show is awareness. I could imagine if I had no exposure, I'm in recovery from an eating disorder as well as being licensed, but I would imagine if I was, let's say in my fifties and I was struggling with food at this point, I wonder if I would say to myself, oh, I can't possibly have an eating disorder. I'm 55. So part of this show is to bring awareness to the fact that you absolutely could have an eating disorder regardless of your age. Yeah. That's one population that you've seen and, and treated, it sounds like as well. Could you speak to adolescents and athletes? Athletes, again, I'd love to share some of my personal experience with that, having been a division one athlete. Eating disorders are everywhere. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. I ran track in college as well. And yes, they're everywhere. I think athletes are a population that's getting more attention regards to having eating disorders. And it's so easy to let it fall under the radar, especially in the lean sports. So, you know, lean sports are any sport where it's said to have a competitive advantage for being lighter or where you're being judged based on your appearance. Not to say that like a basketball player or a soccer player um, can't have an eating disorder, but I think because those sports that emphasize leanness don't really look at the methods that athletes are doing to keep their lean physique. Mm. But also people who are athletes who have eating disorders they practice harder. They practice longer. They're practicing on rest days. They're doing they're what looks like to the coach going above and beyond what's expected of training. Mm-hmm. And really, it's a good way to kind of like hide your exercise addiction or, you know, the, the way you're managing your eating disorder or the way you're managing your food through your exercise. 
And so I think that that's why a lot of people don't recognize it out the gate is because they're like, oh, well, this athlete's just really dedicated to their sport. Whereas like, that's a pretty big red flag. Um, you know, another one is that athletes are obviously very prone to injury. You said you were a division one athlete. Like I'm sure you knew many people who were injured throughout your time in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Two things with that one, an injury can trigger an eating disorder because one thing you may not realize if you've been a competitive athlete your whole life is that your sport is probably managing your anxiety. And once you're injured, that can really, you have no outlet for it. So it can go into eating disorder behaviors. Absolutely. It was so classic, especially sports too. I think another trigger is weighed sports. I was not in a yes. lightweight boat. I rode crew, but for lightweight mm-hmm. boats, there was weight capacities. So it mattered yep. what people, I mean, when you show up and someone's like, okay, get on a scale, it's like, how could that yeah. not trigger an eating disorder for people when right. they're weighing you, when you need to be under a certain weight or like you said, look a certain way for more lean oriented sports. Right. And the other thing with the injury part of it is too, is if you have an athlete who's chronically injured or struggling with small injuries throughout the season, you know, if somebody's in their eating disorder, their body's slower to recover and it's slower to heal. So that in itself is a red flag. Mm. And then I think another red flag is a lot of athletes Female athletes specifically think it's very normal to not get your period. However, that's also an indicator that it may not be an eating disorder specifically, but, you know, we used to talk a lot about the female athlete triad, and now it's called um, REDS. It's Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and that's to include male athletes as well. But that's an indicator of REDS, not getting your period as well. And so to know that that's not normal. And I think if you're a college athlete or a high school athlete, or you're a coach and no one gets their period, you probably think, well, that's just what happens when you're an athlete. And same with it. If you are an athlete, you might think, well, no one on my team has my period. So why is this abnormal? And that is a red flag that people should be looking out for. Again, absolutely. I mean, especially in running, because I was a runner and then got injured and then switched sports. A lot of women, young girls even didn't get their periods. And it was because I think more eating disorders than it was necessarily a delay in getting your period. Right. And, you know, it's very rare that most people are like that you get a whole team of athletes who are just naturally delayed in getting their period. Right, right. Exactly. It's the the percentage chance of that happening is really slim that everyone would be delayed. No, absolutely. Two questions. One, are there any warning signs? We talked about warning signs last week that people could see in athletes that are different. I know you said if they're injured, slow to heal, anything that people could look out for if they have a loved one that's an athlete, or if you're an athlete listening and you think you may have an eating disorder, but aren't sure. Yeah. A couple of things is one, like if you're an athlete and you're a six day a week athlete training, what are you doing on that seventh day of your rest day where the rest of the team is resting? Are you going for like a lighter run, a light bike ride, a swim, a power yoga class? Like if you can't tolerate a rest day and you're trying to chalk that up to be normal in your sport, it's most likely not. So that's like a pretty big thing to look out for for parents as well. If you I think a lot of times too, parents have this competitive athlete who's practicing seven days a week, you know, that seventh day on their own and then taking zero rest days that month. Like that's, that's abnormal and that's actually an issue. Mm. So that's like one indicator of overexercise right there. And like you said, it can often be viewed as, wow, look at them going above and beyond. Right. And I think so something else that's a little bit different is, you know, 
how is the athlete like fueling themselves on a rest day? Hmm. A lot of times you may just see athletes in a competitive setting where after a meet game match, whatever, and they're fueling because they know to keep doing their sport, they have to fuel in some regards. However, what, how are you doing your food intake on a rest day? You know, are you cutting carbs? Are you restricting in other areas? Are you skipping meals altogether thinking that's normal because you don't need that fuel for that day? But how you're fueling on a rest day is just as important because the next day you're going right back into your activity. So that, you know, it's not normal to just eat more food like two days before a game or match. You need to be consistently fueling yourself throughout the week. So that's something that someone could look for as well. So true. And again, in diet culture, you're taught. I mean, I can't tell you how many posts I read daily on social media about, oh, on rest days, just cut your carbs. Like, yep. Okay. Yep. okay. I'm like, let's perpetuate. But you're on rest day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like on a rest day, your body's healing and it needs nutrition to heal. Right. So that's not actually helping the process. Absolutely. And then something else, and it could feel obvious, but also can be brushed aside is you have somebody start to withdraw from the team. You can easily push it off for the first few times. It's like, oh, I have a lot of homework. Oh, I'm really tired. But if you have a teammate that you start to notice some social isolation with, something's most likely going on. It doesn't necessarily have to be an eating disorder. It could be just, you know, they're having interpersonal problems at home or their depression or anxiety. But if somebody has a change in behavior, that's an indicator that something's happening. Mm, Such great, great advice and um, perspective there. If you are an athlete or you know an athlete that may be struggling, obviously treatment is one way, outpatient, inpatient, depending upon where they are in their eating disorder or with their eating disorder, therapy, one-on-one. Is there any course of action you would suggest for treatment specifically for athletes or is it pretty traditional with eating disorder treatment? What I can say is that it's been a little bit difficult um, to get athletes into residential treatment centers because at a residential treatment center, for the most part, like you're resting and you're removed from your sport. And so I know that can be difficult. We do at Montanito incorporate movement where we can in forms of yoga, walk, circuit training, once somebody's on the right path um, in terms of weight restoration and interruption in behaviors. Mm. But not a lot of athletes seek treatment and it's a little bit difficult even at the IOP level because IOP typically tends to be when practice is. And if an athlete wants to remain on their team, sometimes they have to attend practices even if they can't compete. You just physically be present. Mm. I always recommend finding an outpatient provider that's eating disorder informed. If you can find a specialist who works with athletes as well, that's even better. So they really kind of understand the demand of your sport. Because also with that being said, not every athlete that struggles with an eating disorder is going to struggle with exercise. It sometimes has nothing to do with their sport. Mm. So their eating disorder can be separate from their sport. Um, and it also can be intertwined in it. And that's really why you need the specialist to be able to figure out which is part of the sport and which is part of their eating disorder involved in the sport. If you have a PCP, I think that's like an indicator too right there is that, you know, a lot of times, and even now we get clients in residential or partial with really low heart rates and people are talking it up to, oh, she's just a runner. However, yes, she's just a runner, but she's also under fueling her body. So she has a deconditioned heart. So her heart rate resting in 40 at 40, that's not normal. That's actually because of her heart being malnourished and the muscle being weak. People used to tell me that all the time because my heart, yeah. it was a 47. And they'd be like, oh, it's just because you're an athlete. 
and it would just be, right. you know, passed along. It's like, and I have a huge eating disorder. That's actually part yeah, of this. Yeah, that too. no one's catching yes. because yes. it's quote unquote normal to have a low heart rate if you're a runner. Yes, and it, it is. It is so challenging. I think all of those extra layers that you just described when you are an athlete to decipher between eating disorder and just athlete and why going to a specialist, someone like you, Michelle, um, is so vital and key for athletes in particular. Because I think, you know, if you are an athlete, yes, you probably do have a pretty low resting heart rate. But if you are an athlete and then develop your eating disorder while you're doing your sport, you're going to see some changes in the body. It's going to respond. You know, your heart rate's going to drop. So your heart rate probably always hasn't been in the 40s. You know, your lab values might change a little bit. So when those things happen, obviously residential level of care is recommended and it kind of has to be the intervention just to really save their life. Mm. You know, if med- if someone's medically stable, we try to work with them, whether it's IOP, PHP, or outpatient as much as you can to keep them engaged and involved in their life. Because really the team aspect is something that can really motivate someone's recovery. Social support, such a great, yeah. great thing to bring up as well. Is there anything else about athletes that you would want to tell our audience if someone is struggling? I would love to also link to whatever link you want to give us, either to Laurel Hill or your private practice, if you're willing to, so people can reach out if they know someone that is struggling and may need help. I think like one thing, just, you know, just be aware, know that athletes can struggle and know the culture of the team. That's the most important part. If the culture of the team is disordered, be aware of your individual child, spouse, friend, athlete, whomever it is, you know, kind of know what's going on in their team. Know that if people are struggling and if they're saying it's normal to not eat carbs or cut back or don't actually take that rest day or we don't have our periods, you know, or just kind of know, know the environment. And I think that really helps because the team can set the tone for everything. Absolutely. I feel like we would need to have you come back on to talk about adolescents and give them (laughs) enough time. But is there anything briefly you can say about the adolescent population that you treat um, as far as anything in in particular, if there's a parent listening and they have someone who is an adolescent and they think is struggling? Yeah, no one's too young to have an eating disorder. Mm. I think like, honestly, that's the first thing to really know. If your child stops growing, that's a huge red flag. If your child doesn't gain weight, but maintains weight year to year and they're younger, that's a huge red flag. You know, a lot of times what's tricky about adolescents is that they can be tricky and they eat lunch at school. So are they throwing away their lunch at school every day? It's going to be hard for the parents to really catch on to that after it's been a while. But kind of just asking the questions like, oh, you know, who you eat lunch with? You know, what do people typically have? And just if they all of a sudden become a quote unquote picky eater, that's also kind of a red flag. Whereas if your child up to age 11 was eating most things you put in front of them and then all of a sudden decides they don't want to eat red meat or carbohydrates or sweets anymore. Like, you know, just kind of like take note of that and be aware of that and always ask about intention because there is so much talk about when it comes to adolescence. But I think it's really important to kind of just one, know that you can develop an eating disorder at any age. Two, know who their friends are. And, you know, also too, kind of like the team environment, know kind of you can like what they talk about. I know as they become teenagers, it's really hard to be in their world but just know just kind of what the tone is in their friend group. And are you giving the child money for school or like, are you packing their lunch? And 
you know, check their bags sometimes when they come home. Because what I found with my adolescents is most of them would just bring their lunch home uneaten. Mm. And, you know, it kind of slipped under the radar for a while. But there are little signs there that you can pick up on and little comments that people might make like, oh, I'm bigger than my friends or, oh, I've gained so much weight or I need new clothes because these ones like don't fit me anymore. Or I want to like try this new diet, which a lot of teenagers do. Or, oh, I want to join this activity because I need to get more into fitness. I think that like we oftentimes see that as a really good sign of someone wanting to be more involved in things and quote unquote, what looks like taking care of their health. But, you know, look deeper and kind of look beyond that. And if your child is prone to anxiety or depression, an eating disorder can be a really good outlet for it. So just be careful. So it sounds like some commonalities, if someone is prone to anxiety or depression, they could develop an eating disorder. Um, So look out for those in both populations, right? Athletes, adolescents, even um, adults over the age of 30. And in general, I think that that's a marker. Yeah. And then specifically, pay attention. I feel like we need to have you back I don't, <laughs> just to talk about adolescence um, because yeah. there is so much there. Michelle, there's just too much for us to not address when it comes to adolescence, especially because most a lot of our listeners are parents or even of young children and some adolescents. Would you mind coming back next week and we can just do a show on adolescence? Yes, I would love to come back and talk about adolescents. There is so much to say about them. So much to say. So next week for everyone listening, we'll have Michelle come back on and just talk about adolescents since we spent so much time on athletes today and other outliers that you wouldn't normally associate with eating disorders. Michelle, we're going to have you back. So I'll get your backstory um, when you come back on next week because I'm fascinated by the work you do. And also... You are just clearly such a wealth of knowledge in this area. So thank you for all the work you do in the eating disorder community too. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's clear you help a lot of people. Um, So if someone is an athlete or knows an athlete that's struggling, we'll make sure to put a link to um, Montanito and Affiliates in this podcast episode. Um, And Michelle, if she shares her contact information, we'll make sure to link that as well. Yes. Michelle Felton, LMHC and CEDS. That's a certified eating disorder specialist. She's clinical director of Laurel Hill in Medford, Massachusetts, and also has a private practice. She will be back with us next week to talk about adolescence. Thanks so much for your time this week. Um, We really appreciate it. You're welcome. I look forward to talking to you next week. And we'll be right back on Well Seekers. After a long day, taking time to love yourself and your friends and your family more well can be a challenge. We're so burnt out and exhausted and stressed from working so hard during the day, we forget to love the people and the places and the things that are important to us. Well, Lucia Knight is here to help. We're gonna be a retreat and a treat for your day. A place to laugh, to connect, and to learn to love yourself and others more well. We're gonna talk about relationships, ways to sleep better. We'll have expert guests, personal stories, maybe even a musical guest or two. We'll share behind the scenes into my own life as well, my friends, my family, and of course, my relationships. So close the door on your day and light up your night with Lucia at night. Also, make sure to check out more at wellseekers.com for simple and real life ways to bring wellness home. I'll see you tonight on Lucia at Night.
Thanks for being part of the Seekerhood. We couldn't do this without you. Now, back to the show. And we're back on Well Seekers. Thanks so much to Michelle again for coming on the show. Such valuable information, and we can't wait to have her back next week to talk about adolescence. So before we let you go, I just want to tell everyone about a few exciting things happening here at Well Seekers. The first is our brand new podcast and vlogcast, Lucia at Night, is going to go live this week. And I couldn't be more excited. I really am about all things relationships, not just relationship with your significant other, but relationships with parents and siblings, your relationship with food, your relationships with health. I think life is all about relationships, your relationship with everything you do with work. But Lucia at Night is going to be just a fun and informative show about love, loving yourself more well, loving others more well, a ton of talk about music and entertainment and everything that we need to do to close the door in our day and light up our night. So make sure you tune in to Lucia at night. If you subscribe to our RSS feed for Well Seekers, you'll get notification of a brand new show. So you may want to hit subscribe. You can also follow us on Instagram at WellSeekers, Facebook, Twitter at WellSeekers, and you can follow us on Instagram at Lucia at Night to follow and get more info on the show there and about all things love. I also want to tell you that we still have our fall kindness boxes, helping people build a better relationship with themselves and fall into kindness. So check that out at WellSeekers.com. Just click on the shop tab private club. I spend a lot of time with other experts coming up with these boxes every month. So I hope you check it out. Even if you just look into the back to basics box, which is our first like all essential box, just such great tools in there. So make sure to check it out. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Michelle will be back next week to talk about adolescence in more detail. We want to thank her for being our guest. I want to thank you for your time. I know that you guys have so many options for where you get your information from, for where you put your heart and your time. And I'm just so grateful that you're here spending it with me and with us. So thanks for listening to the show. And we will talk to you next week right here on Well Seekers. How would you like to join the conversation? Email us anytime at hello at wellseekers.com.